Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that are here. We are finishing up Stephaniah tonight. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Stephaniah chapter 3, please. Zephaniah chapter 3. We have seen the um, judgment of Judah under the phrase of the day of the Lord in chapter 1. First, the short term being the near Babylonian captivity of Judah. Secondly, the long term being the pouring out of God's wrath in the tribulation and great tribulation period. The 70th week of Daniel. The day of the Lord is the central theme uh, mentioned seven times in this book. And usually, like we said, Joel, Amos deals with it. And many of the prophets do. But Joel is usually um, uh, brought to bear the, as the prophet of the day of the Lord. But here, um, um, Sephaniah gives a, a great emphasis to it also. And then we saw the call of repentance. To Judah and the judgment of the pagan nations. In fact, the second chapter is divided all the way to verse 8 of chapter 3 to include Judah as part of the pagan nation because she was living like those nations. And we focus on that in our text this morning in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Um, in that second chapter, you see... Um, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Ethiopians, the Assyrians. We saw in our study of chapter 2 that many of the prophets have a list of Gentile uh, judgment pronounced upon them. Um, so that Sephaniah is not the only one. Now in the third chapter, Sephaniah deals with the restoration of the nation after God's judgment is executed upon her. So there was again the short-term return from Babylon. This is very clear in the book of Jeremiah as he gives us the exact 70 years. Uh, Daniel praying to God when the 70 years were almost up according to the book of Jeremiah. He sought the Lord on how God would use him and God gave him the 70th week of Daniel of the um, first coming of Jesus riding in Jerusalem on uh, a colt on the foal of a, a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. And then also the long-term fulfillment on the second coming, the fact of the seven years of tribulation in which the Antichrist will rule. And in the middle, he breaks that covenant as he enters the temple and declares himself God. And Paul the Apostle speaks about that very clearly in Second Thessalonians Chapter 2. And um, so uh, some of these Old Testament prophets, um, minor and major, they, uh, God gave them incredible insight into things that, again, they were not the source of. Often people say, well, you know, the Bible is just um, a book written by men. Well, how do you explain the accuracy of future fulfillment of prophecy when it comes to pass? Prophecies that spoke about hundreds of years, thousands of years ahead of time. And then they come to pass exactly. You can't explain it. They aren't the source. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, verse um, 19 through 21, tells us very clearly that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin. 
But they were literally carried along by the Spirit of God so that when they spoke and they recorded God's word, it was God's inerrant, infallible word, not their own. They were not the source. They were merely the channel. And Paul, again, affirms that the revelation of God is literally expired from God in Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scriptures given by inspiration, sealed, nustos, expire from God, if proper for doctrine, correction, instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. The Old Testament bears witness over and over again that it's God's revelation. Take the first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's not a declaration for a discussion. It's a proclamation of fact. And then he gives you the condition of the earth prior to the creation. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then the process of creation, the first, second, third, fourth, sixth day. One chapter. Few supplementary details about the creation of man in chapter 2. They have to put back in in chapter 1. But if you or I would have written Genesis, the details on creation would have taken 100 volumes. Because we would have wanted people to know how smart we were. God is not trying to convince you, impress you. He's telling you what he did. If you want to believe it, then that's good. If you don't, that's bad. It's just that simple. And so the same with prophecy. And we've gone through many of the prophecies and we've studied very detailed prophecies, the chance probability, and there isn't a chance factor that it could be by chance. Absolutely not. And so... Here in the third chapter, short term, the long term, he focuses more on the long term, even going into the millennial kingdom. Because remember, the day of the Lord is not just a one-time event, okay? The day of the Lord, here we are in the timeline of the church. The rapture takes place right here. Church goes up. Russia attacks Israel. The day of the Lord begins. All three things happen at the same time. That day of the Lord continues into the appearance of the Antichrist, the first three and a half years, false peace. He builds the temple, the Antichrist, declares himself God. The abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, Matthew 24, 15, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last three and a half years, the wrath of God is poured out on earth. In this whole period, God is losing the seals, the trumpets, and the bold judgments. We come back with Jesus At the end of the seven years, Battle of Armageddon. This is still the day of the Lord. Notice there's the rapture, false peace, the abomination of desolation, God's wrath, the second coming, the Battle of Armageddon, the judgment of the nations, the kingdom for a thousand years. All of that is the day of the Lord. So it's a period of time with many events within that. All right? We got that? So it's very, very important. The day of the Lord is a day of indignation, as we'll see, a day of wrath, a day of doom. It's not a day of reward, okay? In its inception, it will in terms of the kingdom age for Israel, but not in its inception. And so, chapter 3 here, verse 1 through 8, 
We have uh, the sinful corruption of Judah in spite of God's patience to have them um, repent. Uh, in chapter 3, 1 through 4, as we saw this morning, um, he deals with Jerusalem directly. Um, th- this is the deserved judgment of Judah. He says, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted, the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. So her judgment is deserved. There is no discussion here. It's a proclamation. The general corrupt nature and condition of Jerusalem is given to us in verse 1. The city was announced to be under the judgment of, of God's wrath. Woe to her. The word woe, as you know, is an explanation of an alarm. Uh, time had run out. God had given time for repentance. Um, we take the date of Jeroboam um, and Rehoboam's time, Rehoboam under Solomon, and you take it all the way to Josiah's reign here in 621, where the reform was. We're talking about 310 years. That's a long time. People are always accusing God of being impatient, and God's a God of wrath, and the God of the Old Testament's God of wrath, the God of the New Testament's God of love. You know, it's insane. God demonstrates his patience throughout the Bible about how patient he is and how much time he gives to nations and to people to repent from their sin. Now, God is sovereign. He knows what's in the heart of man. Why does God give someone longer than others? That's none of your business or mine. He's holy. He's pure. He can't make mistakes. So he knows exactly what's going to happen. But... He, he shows us from the beginning that he gave 120 years just for the people in the days of Noah. And he knew all along that nobody would repent except for eight people. How long would you have waited? We have the Tower of Babel. God gave the command to disperse through the land. No, we're going to make a religious way to heaven. We're going to rebel. God dispersed them. We have... The land of Canaan, all the ites, Jebusites, uh, Girgashites, and all the guys there. God gave 430 years for them to repent. He told Abraham, I can't give you the land until the abominations of the Amorites have fully come. So God gave in a way that we don't know, 430 years for them to repent. That means, that means by implication, that God, in a way that he has not revealed to us, told them to repent. And gave them time to repent. And when they crossed that line, after 430 years, meanwhile God was building a nation in Egypt, delivered them, judgment on the gods of Egypt to demonstrate there are no gods at all. And he used Israel as the instrument of his judgment as he gave them over the land. And he tells them, the land vomited them out because they were corrupt, they were perverse, they were ungodly. If you do the same, the land will do the same to you. And you can go... Book by book, you can go down to history and you can see the patience of God. But Romans chapter 1 is very clear that the judgment, the wrath of God is poured out every day against ungodliness. We just don't always know it's God's hand. And that's good. But he's continually dealing with people. And so, what was judgment? They're not on a horse It's judgment. Jerusalem was living like the other pagan nations, so God would judge her 
asked the pagan nations. Jesus pronounced woes to the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23. Woe to you Pharisees. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he just goes down the line. Because they had the greater responsibility being the quote, quote, leaders of Israel. The scribes, those who dealt with the law, with the uh, transferring and of the scriptures and the copying and the interpreting and the teaching and all. And uh, they were abusing their position, their authority and ruling over the people and uh, making the temple um, a, a personal enterprise. And uh, Jesus pronounced those woes on them. Now the city was rebellious, dubious, self-will, unpredictable against God. There was no faithfulness. It was polluted, defiled, desecrated, contrary to their God. Remember in the Mount Sinai, they didn't want to go near the mountain. Moses said, come on, no, 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 no. You go talk to God and then you can talk to us. But we don't want to talk to God. (laughs) The city was oppressive, exercising power and authority over people in an unjust way. It's the golden rule. Whoever has the gold rules. People who have power, they will exercise it. Men and women are not good in and of themselves. Uh, Jeremiah is very clear that the bent of man is towards evil. We do have a potential for good because created in the image and likeness of God. But our bent is towards evil. Just watch your little kids when you bring them home from the hospital. Watch them real close. And watch what they will do. No parent ever teaches that one-year-old to go over to another one-year-old and to push him down and take his toy. You have to teach him not to do that. Just the way it is. You tell your son who's 12, give your brother half of this piece of cake. He cuts the cake. Compares him. One's a little bigger. So, he evens it out, takes a bite. And now he gives his brother the other half. He wants a little more. It's just the way it is. So we don't want to deny the goodness that God gave us the potential for, but we certainly don't want to deceive ourselves thinking that goodness is our bent. It is not. James says, where do wars come from? When they come from your own members, you desire to have, you can't have, so you kill and you destroy. It's the way it is. And so, in verse 2, the specific sins of Jerusalem, she did not obey God, wouldn't hear. And repentance, chapter 2, verse 1, made that very, very clear. The city had not received, accepted, or acknowledged her, her need of correction and discipline and chastening. Wayward, just as the parent is grieved when they're trying to deal with their son or daughter and they're trying to be as patient, as loving, and praying for them that they would understand what they're doing is wrong and it's harmful not only to themselves but to others and they receive the discipline that that they are given but their heart is not in agreement with what's going on. They are still rebellious. The child still believes the parent is absolutely wrong, unfair, mean. That's why they're children. That's why God gave them parents. Today, if you look at any announcement on television, they use children to instruct the adults 
The adults are the imbeciles. The children are the wisest in the world. Take the shot that they want to force upon your young daughters of Papilloma. That new, I forget the acronym on that thing. And they say, well, you know, Mom, if you would have known, I wouldn't have got cancer if you would have... Well, don't be messing around. If you're not immoral, you won't have to worry about it. You don't need the shot, just be moral. It's simple. And what is in that shot that you want my daughter to take it? It's an amazing world we live in, ladies and gentlemen. And so it's the children that are instructing the adults, right? It's even more evident technology, right? They know we don't get it. <laughs> right? As my grandson, show me. He grabs I don't don't grab it. Show me. They want to do it and give it to you. No, no, you show me. It's a whole different world. And so here again, that obstinate heart, this is the city being personified. The city had not trusted God, having confidence, dependency on the Lord, moved completely away from him and not drawn near to approach God. Not only if she did, wouldn't be able to because of her sin, but her desire was not even there. We've talked about the love of the espousal. What happened to it? What was it when you were out there in the wilderness after me? Just like a relationship with a man and a woman and they first start dating and they pursue each other and then... They get married and then they, they, they cease cultivating that love and that relationship and, and things get weird. Other things start attracting you. Other things start pulling at you. And, 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 and things happen. This is what happened to, to Judah. And remember that God had been warning her all along by her sister in the north. But she didn't pay heed. You see, the thing is that we look at others, we always say, well, that, that won't happen to me. And, and if you are confident in yourself and not relying on God, it will happen to you. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. It's just that simple. Verse 3 and 4, the leaders were the um, primary source of of corruption. It says, her princes in her midst are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves. They leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. And so the Lord is um, indicting her here. The princes, the rulers, be they the royal family or their civil servants under their authority. They're abusive, self-serving. The same happens with pastors. They begin as servants, but then they become politicians. And so they act like politicians. And they simply use and manipulate the people. I mean, it's now nothing new. 
Study the history of the church. Study the scriptures. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, some of you will rise up and bring disciples to yourself and teach things that you're not supposed to. Paul warns about Phygelus, Homogenes, Demas, who overthrew the faith of some shipwreck of the faith. Demas loved this present world and left me. And so the warnings are all through Scripture. It happens in every generation, nothing new. The judges were evening wolves, so the leaders like they were lions. And not it's not a simile because it's not introduced by the word like or as, as we said this morning, but they're lions. They're just treacherous, they're just vicious, they're just destructive, self-serving. And again, the judges, evening wolves, they are relentless. They have the power to break people. They can bring judgments and verdicts. Um, tampering with the evidence or just simply declaring the evidence invalid because they have the power, right? We've seen a lot of bad things that have happened in our own courts. And our courts become corrupted like any other. The prophets were insolent, wanton, reckless, treacherous, betrayers, untrustworthy, no integrity misrepresenting God, saying they're speaking for God, when in fact what they're saying demonstrates they're not speaking for God, they're speaking for themselves. There's a lot of people, you know, when I came to the Lord in 1973, we've gone through a lot of different groups and different fraudulent false pastors and teachers. I've been around for about 42 years and, and they've come and go. And the only thing that exposes them is the word of God. They expose themselves by what they say and what they do. That's why you are to be a good Berean to examine to find out if what someone says is so. And you drop the plumb line, you put them up to it, and you say, he's biblical or he's not. Real simple. And so the Bible does teach us and command us to make judgments, objective truth com, uh, judgments. The Bible is not subjective. It's not about feelings. It's not about emotions. It's about God's truth for our lives. And so the priests had polluted, profaned the sanctuary, defiled it, violated the law, again, twisting and abusing it. They were to teach it, but they were corrupting it. In fact, they, they weren't even being true to God in it. And yet, uh, Jeroboam, when he first began, made a priest of the common people. And he made us worship centers up in Dan and the north and Bethel, down south. And uh, he says, these are the gods that delivered you from Egypt. Because he didn't trust God. He was afraid that they would return to the house of David in the feast days and give allegiance to David. So he changed the feast. He counteracted them. He made worship centers and, you know, and God sent prophet after prophet and they just, just ignored it. You have the blessings and the cursings of Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and Leviticus 26. So whenever you're dealing with God's judgments and his blessings and, and cursings, Keep those three chapters in mind. They're always related to those three chapters in the law. In verse 5 to 8, you have the diligent patience of God. In um, verse 5, 
He says, the Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness every morning. He brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust knows no shame. So here in the midst of all this evil and everything, the Lord is righteous in the midst of them. He doesn't become corrupted like his people. He doesn't go along with it. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings justice to light. He never changes. There's never been a day he has not brought righteousness or justice from the start of the day to the setting of the sun. This is reinforced emphatically by the statement, he never fails in verse 5. The contrast, but the unjust knows no shame. So here's the great contrast, a holy God and sinful people. You can't miss it. And yet, who are these people? His nation, who have apostatized from him, who have corrupted themselves. You know, it's always interesting to hear some people share of people who brought them to Christ and how they were praying for them and they witnessed to them and they were such great faithful friends or witnesses of the gospel and they shared with them. And that now to their own sadness, those people that brought them to Christ, they're back in the world. They don't even believe in God now. And that happens at times. It's amazing. Jesus in John 15 says, you must abide in me. He gives the illustration for fruit bearing. But then he moves into the application and he's talking to his disciples. If you do not abide in me, you will be cut and cast in the fire. Study it very, very careful. If there is no chance of not abiding, why would Jesus bring it up? Simple. Okay? All the warnings are to believers, not non-believers. Non-believers are dead. You don't tell non-believers to abide. You tell believers to abide. It's just that simple. Verse 6 through 7, you have the holy justice of God. It was revealed to Judah. I have cut off nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate. With none passing by, their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitants. So here again, God was out of his way to make sure that they knew when he was bringing a judgment to other nations that it was because of their manner of lifestyle and their refusal to repent. And he says, learn from this. You have the evidence of my character. This is how I deal with people and nations. And God here expressing in, in verse 7, um, he discloses a thought on how Judah should have responded to God. He says, I said, surely... You will fear me as they saw him devastate nations and cities and streets are empty. Surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off. Speaking about Judah. Despite everything for which I punished her, but they rose early and corrupted all 
their deeds. So God is saying here, I've gone out of my way more than anything else to try to be patient, to turn you, to done everything, and you just have said, no, 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 we will not repent. You remember Isaiah chapter 5, he gives the, uh, uh, the parable of the, of the vineyard, right? He says, you know, I hedged you in, I watered you, I fertilized you, and, and, and I did everything. I was expecting these nice, healthy grapes. What I get? Sour grapes? What's he saying? It's not my fault. I didn't predestine you to, to walk away from me. You walked away from me. You did not abide. You see, because if you believe in eternal security, in terms that God predestines some to be saved and some to be damned, then you have to fault God for being unjust and unholy. Because if he predestined a few to be saved and then predestines the majority of humanity to be damned, when both parties deserve hell, then you have to conclude that God's not holy. He's not good. He's not just. You can't have it. The only way God can maintain his attributes of holiness, goodness, and kindness, and justice, and perfect judgment, is that he died for all, and all will have an opportunity to repent. And those who do not repent, the guilt and the burden falls on them, not on God. I said a couple of weeks ago that sinners are the deciding vote. God votes for the sinner to go to heaven. Satan votes for you to go to hell. Which way you want to go? If you don't repent, you vote to go to hell. If you repent, you vote to go to heaven. It's simple. You don't need a PhD. He told Adam and Eve, the day you eat, you'll die. Now, if God predestined Adam and Eve to fail, then how can he judge them justly and punish them for something he predestined them to do? So you got to be careful how you look at predestination. All right? Don't do it the Calvinistic way, which is Augustinian theology from the Catholic Church. He even rejected it. And then Calvin came along and perfumed it and neatly packaged it. But it's still poison inside. Okay? It's a dried up tulip. That's what it is. And so, here again, God demonstrates his love, his patience. He's innocent. He's holy. They didn't Learn from it. They didn't respond the way they should have. So in verse 8, the ultimate judgment of God over the nations of the world. And, and, and the division of this, verse 8, most divisions are there. But verse 8 could be transitional. It's still hooked to the first seven. But it also is a transition that prepares you for the millennial kingdom that starts in verse 9. Okay? Because he says here, therefore, conclusion... Wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder, 
My determination is to gather the nations to uh, my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. That is the day of the Lord. After he removes his church. So it's transitional. So the division from 1 to 8 is accurate. And then 9 on down. But verse 8 I would label transitional. It looks back and it looks forward. Okay. It makes that hookup. And so here verse 8. The prophet Zephaniah now prophesies about the long term fulfillment of the second coming. That I mentioned at the beginning. He includes the authority of, of God's word. Thus saith the Lord. Therefore wait for me. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Judah. He's talking to Israel. He's talking about the remnant. He's not talking to the church here. Israel is not the church. That's replacement theology. The majority of churches teach that the church and Christians are spiritual Israel. If you believe that, you just fail religion class. The church is a bride, a virgin, waiting, looking for a wedding of Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. The remnant are, are Jews of the 12 tribes. Simple. The Old Testament wife has been unfaithful, put away by divorce. The New Testament bride is a virgin looking for a wedding. Do not confuse them. If you don't know the difference, go talk to your mama. She'll tell you the difference. And yet the church confuses them and substitutes the one for the other. Here he's talking to Judah. He's talking about the short-term return after the Babylonian captivity and long-term as he collects the remnant from the four corners of the earth to establish the kingdom age. And so, the day is one of judgment. The day is certain and will be victorious until the day I rise up for plunder. The day will experience God's wrath, underlying the word, my indignation, to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms to pour out on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. Where indignation identifies the day of the Lord, as I said. Psalm 2 gives you a preview of the second coming for the battle of Armageddon. Why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? I will have them in derision. The Lord will laugh at them. And the psalm finishes, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Kissing of an idol is the practice of idolatry. He says, you want to kiss somebody, you kiss the son. You worship him, lest he be angry with you. Revelation chapter 6 to 19 gives you this whole tribulation and great tribulation in the battle of Armageddon. Psalm 2 is the preview. Jesus will judge the nations for their treatment of the Jew during the great tribulation. Joel 3, 2, Matthew 25, 32 through 46, and many, many other passages. When do we visit you in prison? When do we give you a glass of water, a cup of water? When you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. Context, Matthew 24 and 25 are Twinkies. 
They go together. Israel, the church is nowhere there. At the end of 24, Jesus has already turned to the earth. He begins to reward those who are faithful, who are waiting for him. In Matthew 25, the five foolish virgins and the wise virgins, it's not the church. It's not the rapture. Study 24 and 25, it's tribulation and great tribulation, the second coming. Context, context, context. After he rewards for the kingdom, the first thing he does is he judges the nations, how they treated the Jew. Simple. Okay? And so, the day will vindicate the holiness of God. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Verse 9 through 20, you have the promise of restoration. 9 through 13, the kingdom age for Israel is given. In verse 9, he says, For then I will restore the people of pure language, that they may call um, on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. And so here, the day looks um, back to the previous verse, after the judgment of the nations and the kingdom is set up. For then, okay, there's the connection. The Messiah is reconciled. To the adulterous wife now as a faithful wife. I will restore to the people a pure language. This does not refer to a new or common language that everybody's going to speak. But it's talking about um, a common oneness of heart and mind and speech to glorify God. A pure language. The worship of God by the remnant. God has his remnant. He will collect the Jew from the four corners of the earth. The purpose is to be able to be one with their God. To enable them, listen, that they all may call on the name of the Lord Yahweh. To equip them to serve him with one accord. And so, verse 10 through 13, you have the worship. It will be of Jesus, their Messiah. Very, very clear here. In verse 10, it says, From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In that day, there's the key, in that day, he's talking about that day that he mentioned in verse 8, in that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. That's the kingdom age. And so the Jew will come from afar, beyond the river Euphrates here, the worshipers. Verse 11, the nation of Israel will be one with their Messiah. The key phrase, in that day. Their guilt and sins will be forgiven. In verse 11, you shall not be ashamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. Sin is always against God first. Then against somebody else or with somebody else. But sin primarily, remember David says, against you and only you have I sinned. When he sinned with Bathsheba and against Uriah. It was primarily first against God, then with 
or against people. The proud will be removed. Verse 11 tells us, those who rejoice in their pride, the kingdom age will be ruled like a rod of iron. Jesus will be ruling. Now, there will be people that will enter the kingdom age who did not take the mark of the beast, the nations that the Lord allows and the Jewish nation of the remnant to occupy the nation. But those people are like you and I right now, human. They will live, they will die, though the earth will be renewed to a certain extent, there will still be sin and death because Isaiah says a child dies at 100 years old and he dies young, okay? Satan is bound for a thousand years. Now, you and I were glorified. We're the church. We were glorified when we were raptured. We went through the Bema Seat of Christ, came back with Jesus as he establishes the kingdom, okay? So we're ruling and reigning with him. After the thousand years, then there's the eternal state. It'll be altogether a different thing. But the thousand years will be humans just like you and I. But not the church. We're glorified. So we must make that distinction. Now, they will walk in humility, says in verse 11 there. No longer walking haughty. Location will be, don't miss it, Jerusalem, in my holy mountain. That's not Mount Baldy. That's not Mount Whitney or any other place. It's Jerusalem. And you know that Jesus is going to change the topography there as he steps down in the Mount of Olives, Zechariah tells us, and he, he has it cleave to the right and the left. Verse 12 and 13, the nation of Israel will be the people of God. Verse 12 says, I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel, underline that, shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. That can only be the kingdom age, ladies and gentlemen. Mark it well. Notice first in verse 12, they're trusting God during this period. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Right now, Israel doesn't do that. The Orthodox Jews, the guys with the black hats and the curls, they're a very small portion. And they do not believe that Israel has any right to exist as a nation. In fact, they've asked King Hussein of, or, or Jordan to annex them years ago because they believe they have no right until the temple is built. But the regular Jew, they're just secular, good moral and perverted people like anybody else. They're not religious. All the kosher laws are because of the Hasidic Jews that, that are part of the Knesset. And they have to go along with the program. And so, here, they are going to trust the Lord. They're living in righteousness, the remnant of Israel. Now, people that teach replacement theology in most seminaries, Fuller and APU and many of them, teach that replacement theology. And they... Scratch out remnant and they put their church. You can't do that. You can't do that. They shall do no unrighteousness, speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue 
be found in their mouth. They're growing spiritually. They feed their flocks and lie down. No one shall make them afraid. Not only are they growing spiritually, but they're in peace. If you know anything about Israel today, there is no peace. In fact, we were just there this last, this year, earlier in May. And they are, are waiting for an attack. They have underground bunkers for all their people. You see, if there's an attack on our nation, all these scummy politicians, they have their underground thing in Washington. And they're going to lock us all out. In Israel, they have underground bunkers for all their people. Big difference. Okay? And so, here they're in safety. Right now, Israel's not in safety. They are waiting to get hit. They are prepared. Verse 14 through 20, you have the praise in the restored kingdom here. 14 and 15, celebration of the remnant in the kingdom. Don't mistake it. 14, the remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness. I'm sorry, 14, I was on 13. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the King of Israel, the Lord. Jesus Christ is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. Wow. A time of celebration. The proclamation to rejoice is there. Single daughter. Shout, O Israel. Be glad, rejoice in your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem. Identifying specifically, there's no mistake who is the context. It's not the church. Not the United States. Not New York. The reason for her joyous celebration in 15 is that he has pardoned her for, from judgment. Jesus has removed their enemies. Jesus is with them. The king of Israel in their midst. Jesus will protect and secure them. You shall see disaster no more. Listen to Isaiah as he speaks in chapter 11. About the kingdom age, Isaiah, um, there in chapter 11, around verse 8 on down, he says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, speaking of Jesus, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. He'll be laying with the lamb, not eating the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play with the cobra's hole. And the winged child shall put his hand in a viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord Yahweh. As the waters cover the sea. 
The context is the kingdom age, ladies and gentlemen. As we are ruling with Jesus Christ. The animal kingdom will be reverted back to the pre-Adamic state. Even though one aspect of creation is not reverted. The serpent. It will eat dust all the days of its life. Because it was the instrument. We've spoke about that before. In verse 16 through 20, you have the exaltation of Jerusalem in the kingdom age. In 16, he says, in that day, there's a key again. The context is still the same from verse 8, right? In that day, it should be said of Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. If you are a parent, you know exactly what this means in verse 17 when you're speaking about your child. Who has had a rough day or a bad dream or a bad day of school or some bully has pushed him or something. And then he comes home and you come from, you know, this is not going to happen to you. You're okay. I am here. Wow. 18 says, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed, over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. And so in 17 and 18, he is there in the midst of their present. He is their salvation. Um, he is overjoyed with them and he is their comfort and he will sing and shout about them. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will comfort them. Verse 18, the Messiah will relieve and take up the care of the downtrodden Verse 18, the kingdom age is occupied by people that, as I said, have sin nature. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you, to whom it reproaches a burden. Once again, there's a big difference between living without Jesus Christ now and living with Christ In the world you shall have tribulation, be of good cheer, but I have overcome the world. So, the best way to go through life's difficulties is to go with with Jesus. In the kingdom age, it will be much the same thing. There will still have to be a dependency on Jesus Christ by the people who occupy the kingdom age. Not us. We are glorified. The church of Jesus Christ. In the kingdom age, in verse 19, he says, Behold all... At that time, it's still that day, I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. So God gives presence to the Jewish nation. It will be a rule of justice. Jesus will be the solemn judge. Jesus will remedy any injustice towards the remnant. Jesus will care for the well 
welfare of the remnant also there in verse 19. And so they will be looking to him once again as they did when he brought them into the land. In verse 20, he says, At that time, once again the context hasn't changed. At that time, I will bring you back even at the time I gather you. For I will give you fame and praise among all the people of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, saith the Lord. And so God will allow the millennial kingdom to fulfill all the promises to the Jew. And the Gentiles will serve the Jewish community. As you look at all the material of the millennial kingdom, we don't have time to go tonight, but we've gone through it in our series. And that's just the way it is. Some people don't like that. Well, it's the kingdom or hell. Which one you want? It's really an easy choice, right? And, um, and here again, the context is the kingdom. At that time, I will bring you back, gather you, Short-term Babylon, but here's the kingdom. Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12. Jeremiah 29, 10. Long-term-wise, uh, back in the law. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3 through 4. Isaiah 11, 12, we've mentioned. Jeremiah 31, 8. Micah 2, 12. Daniel 9, 2. And many, many others. Matthew 24, I will gather you from, the, from all over the world. You'll gather my, the elect. The elect in Matthew 24 is the Jew, not the church, not the Christian. Context will tell you who the elect is. There's the elect of Israel. There's the elect of the church. There's the elect of the angels. So what's the context? And notice the authority. It's divine. Says the Lord Yahweh. So everything that we read for these three chapters. Just three little chapters. It's so full of such... Prophecy, the number of prophecies I, I, I mentioned to you. Incredible. Over half of them have to do with the captivity by the hand of Babylon, but the others prophetically in the long term wise. Because this is divine revelation. This has nothing to do with Sephaniah, but has everything to do with being the instrument of God whose name was Sephaniah. But it is God's word. The Bible has been around for quite a long time, ladies and gentlemen. And men and women have tried to destroy it, to burn it, to get rid of it, to marginalize it. And they are gone, and the Bible is still here. It's simple. God is able, if God is able to give us his word through revelation... He is able to keep his word from destruction. Trust me. And so, next time you um, you read Zephaniah, maybe you have a better idea of how wealthy how wealthy you are. Having these three chapters go through your heart and your mind, as God has revealed incredible things that will not fail. Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. We love you. We thank you, Lord. What a privilege it is to study your word, to read it. 
to be able to just see you work in the life of each of us, Lord. And for you to do a work that no one else can do, we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness these 36 years, how you continue to bring people, how you continue to save, how you continue to just transform lives in their marriages and their single life in every area, Lord. We thank you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet watching tonight, then right where you sit, if you believe Jesus is Christ, who became man, to die for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can call upon him and be saved by grace through faith. So this is your prayer to God if you want to be forgiven and be a child of God. You can repeat after me. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.